I have a really embarrassing story to start with. Oh, yes. So uh, I, I know I'm going to get crap about this all the time by sharing this, but I have to just let you know, so in case the audience out there runs into this, uh, they know what the fix is. So, you know, last week, Wes, like a champ, you set up a Starbound server yeah, uh, during right. the show. And uh, that, that evening, so that evening, uh, I, was, um, I was kind of in a unique position. Because, uh, you know, when you live in a tiny home, when you get offered to house it for somebody in downtown Seattle, you take that hey, up, right? Hey, that sounds that's, nice. That, that's a, by the way, that's a little relationship pro tip, too. When that offer comes along, you got to try to accept that. Because, say, yeah, yes. Yeah. So we go down and we start house sitting Tuesday evening. We were going to, you know, wake up there Wednesday morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get down there. And I don't have any Wi-Fi access. The password, they didn't leave it on the notes. We can't get a hold of them. I can't get on the internet. So in a moment of panic, because I want to play Starbound. Naturally. I turn on tethering on my phone. I'm like, I'm just going to use phone data. Uh, this yeah, is important. Right. Thank you, Ting. Yeah. And uh, I connect, and I start playing. And I'm wondering, is Wes online? Mm-hmm. And I'm playing along, and all of a sudden I notice that I'm having a kind of a hard time controlling and looking around. Okay. I can't, really con- I can't really explain why, but I keep seeming to get this intermittent freeze or pause in the game. Mm. Bup, 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 every three, four seconds. Maybe every three seconds. Bup. Bop, bop. Now that's no and good. it makes, you know, when you're in a battle or something, it's just enough it's just to not kill you. untenable. And it's really, it was like really distracting. And I, I'm i like, well, maybe I have a video driver problem. Maybe I have a power management. Sure. And I go, sure. I, I extinguish a lot of options. Yeah. I start looking. Maybe it's a power management setting, like a CPU frequency. And I'm chatting with Rikai. And I'm tethered to my phone. And I'm looking up stuff online. And I'm You're I'm in like, full troubleshooting this is mode. Like, this is not how I was going to use my mobile data. But now I got to know. And like we're down, we're house sitting. And uh, of course, my lady, she's like... So do you want to come out on the deck or yeah, what are, we gonna you, what are you doing? I, yeah, I got, a, I got this bottle of wine here. What are you doing? And I'm like, I got to fix this. This is important. Uh, and I dig, I dig around and I dig around and I'm starting and I'm trying things. I'm, I'm adding uh, kernel boot parameters. I'm, I'm tweaking the X config according to the arch wiki for Skylake graphics. I'm, I'm making all these modifications to my system and I'm rebooting and I'm rebooting and I'm rebooting. And one of the times I log in, the problem's fixed. Oh. And I go, hot diggity dang, that link Rekai found me about the kernel parameter fixed it. Look at that. And I go to hit one of my keys, and I realize that nothing happens because none of my extensions are loaded. Oh. So I quickly go remove the kernel boot parameter, reboot again with extensions off. The game doesn't have the glitch. I log out of GNOME login with extensions on. The glitch is back. The glitch is back. And I start to notice that the glitch also exists in video playback. Okay. It exists sometimes when just moving the mouse really quickly. Mm. I start noticing, like, when I'm dragging Nautilus windows around, I can see that glitch, and I'm like, oh, what is going on It's interesting here? that the plugin has the ability to cause that much trouble. So I discovered it was my system monitor GNOME extension, which is a really cool system monitor extension that puts all of your hardware devices in an icon, just icons. And so instead of having, like, all of these moving menu meters and stuff like that up in your toolbar, you have... An icon that represents your CPU and your disk and your NIC, and you click those, and it drops down, and you get an expansive drop-down menu of your entire system resources. Well. Sounds nice enough. And I've had plenty of these over the years. Since GNOME 2, I've used things like System Monitor. I did a little digging around, and it turns out there is actually a current issue on their GitHub about this. Uh, The extension causes stutter and lag in video players where they noticed it. And there are some fixes that have been proposed, but... What I did is I just did a purging of anything. So it turns out, by reading through this bug, 
that what it really comes down to, it's not actually Gnome's fault and it's not actually the extension's fault. That's why this is particular, wow, particularly tricky. This is interesting. It's just simply an issue in Linux when you have that many open files and when you're, cat, when you're, when you're cat, catting a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of things in proc. At I the see. same time, you've got a game accessing all of its image data and its sound files and all that stuff. You sometimes get an I.O. stutter like that. It's just like a problem right now. And they talk about it here in this thread. Uh, and they talk about ways you could alleviate the problem by making the uh, extension more efficient and uh, other ways to sort of coalesce some of the polling and things like that. Right. So I just did a grand purge of like extensions that check my uh, CPU temps and my GPU Anything temps. Lots of random yeah, I access. just did a purge. I did a purge and it has been totally smooth, but it totally interrupted my gameplay. Wow. So I didn't get a chance to jump on the <laughs> server last week. There you go. That is my story of a GNOME extension. That turned out. That's good to know. I'm sure I would have gone through exactly the same turmoil. Such you a did. rabbit hole because yeah. you know you start with all the obvious things like oh it's freaking open source graphics or oh it's freaking power management or it's my new Arch and you're kernel, so used or, to those icons up there like you yeah don't even yeah and I've always had it. system monitor right. extensions literally for like ever <laughs> because like I'm often compiling or not compiling often but like when I'm updating my AUR packages I like to watch how busy my system is so I know I can do a bunch of other stuff or definitely when I'm encoding video it's extremely yes. ha- handy mm-hmm. to have that. So it's uh, yeah, it was a little it was a little embarrassing, and I had to share it with you. And you might want to look into it too if you have the GNOME System Monitor extension, which is kind of a popular one, or any of those that pull your system a lot for what's going on. Maybe try turning them off for a little while and see if you notice a difference. That's my lesson. <laughs> this is Linux Unplugged, episode one hundred and fifty-six for August second, two thousand and sixteen. Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that was almost running a little late, because even though it rains so damn much, people still don't know how to drive around the no This is something where Linux will save us all one day. Linux will oh. be in the cars driving us. You know it. And the, us meat sacks will be busy playing on our phones. That's what I think. But that's not what we're here to talk about on today's episode of the Unplugged program. We have a huge, huge fun show to get into. A bunch of really great news has cropped up just in the last couple of days from some of our favorite open source projects. So we're going to spend a bunch of time at the top of the show digging through some of those really good stuff there. New version of Mint uh, XFCE is out. And there's some really interesting news in there, but also really interesting language and positioning by Clem. We'll talk a little bit about that in the show. Then the the Googs has the Chromecast. You guys all know about the Chromecast. It's sold like hotcakes. But it's really reliant on Google services. That's got to be its Achilles heel. This week, we'll talk about ways you can use the Chromecast with tools on your Linux box to stream to a Chromecast locally. So you can go pick yourself up one of these cheap streaming little devices. We'll also talk about some open source alternatives to Chromecast, get the mumble rooms, tips, and all of that. Then we're going to transition into some of the Kodi exploits I've been doing. And by that, I mean adventures and like figuring out how to name my files some of the cool add-ons and extensions i've found of course in-depth and experience here and also a tool to help uh, whip my media collection into shape and i know we'll get some great advice from that virtual lug too on making a really great Kodi installation uh, and i am really looking forward to what they have to say there plus we'll talk about some alternative backends that the community has been talking to me about since i've been talking more about Kodi recently huh. And they look really cool. Some really neat stuff you can do. Even if you're not a uh, home theater person or a uh, Cody or Plex or MB person, the, what we're going to talk about and how these open source projects can interact is absolutely fascinating. So there's just a ton of stuff there. 
So to help us get through all of it, and I mean there is a lot of it, let's bring in that virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mother Room. Greetings, greetings. Hello. 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 I secretly use Arch Linux. Oh, that's fine. I don't, you don't, Poppy, you don't need to. All right. So anyways, I wanted to start with something that uh, proves a prediction that uh, virtual lugger Daredevilin made months ago. When uh, Microsoft announced Ubuntu runtime for Windows, whatever they call that, monstrosity. This, he said, and I think he's right, Linux is going to become the new default platform that you write applications for. And check out this first story we're going to talk about. So there's a lot of Docker news this week. We won't bore you to tears with all of the news, but I'll tell you just a couple of things. First of all, we're going to start with this post about bringing Linux apps to the Mac desktop using frickin' Docker. Why? Well, (laughs) Uh, to access newer versions of software, because it usually takes a while for uh, Mac people to get our second uh, hand. Uh, I can ports. think of a few, like there's some Linux games I like to play where you can install them on Mac, but like a lot of Mac users might not have, sure. you know, Xcode installed, all the things you need to build it. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in Linux, I can be, here, run the script in yeah. Docker and bam, done. Right. Uh, to test versions simultaneously, multiple yeah. different oh, versions yep. simultaneously, to use tools that haven't been ported over to the Mac, and for sandboxing applications. So this is really kind of an, an, uh, an intense walkthrough of how to get, like here's an example of a, of a GTK Slack app, to get all these different uh, apps that are Linux applications running on top of the Mac. And, and sort of along with this today, Docker has announced that they now consider Mac Docker version uh, production ready. Like it's officially been stamped as you can now use Docker on the Mac in production. What do you think about all this? You know, it is interesting. It it does. I think it really does speak to to what Daredevil said about the the Linux runtime being being everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, kind of it kind of worries me a little bit because I'm not still I'm still not I I haven't seen I haven't seen a a container ecosystem where uh, things are being smoothly and routinely updated and things are being uh, patched when there's security exploits. Right. I, and I'm worried that what we – you know, one of the big things that scares me about the Internet of Things, quote, unquote, I hate that term so much. But it's just there's so many terms I hate now that I just figure like I can't – I got to go, roll with it. Like I can't hate cloud for the rest of my life or derp learning, you know. But Internet of Things devices, what's the big security issue in your mind about Internet of Things devices? Well, they never get patched. Exactly. It's, and now we're doing the same exact thing in containers. We're just loading our secure Linux boxes up with containers that never get patched. Now that's not the, that's not universally the case, right? But I'll tell but you, it's what, easy enough to you've pulled that one Docker file one time and then the runs. Yes, and you, you've never done anything yes. else. Yeah, exactly. The, the 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 handfuls of Docker images that I have done uh, that tends to be the case for me. And even if I'm willing to stay up to date on them, it's not always easy because sometimes you can lose data if you screw things up. Because and also sometimes they just simply don't update them. That's another problem. This is sort of potentially leading us down a path that two, three years from now could leave a lot of people in a bad situation. We're yeah. going gonna to wish there was some sort of shared common runtime among all these or but something. But hopefully the increased prevalence on other platforms will contribute to an incentive for that. I, I, yeah, it doesn't have so. to be that way. But Boy, maybe. that is a silver lining. I do, is... I do wonder if they're going to do any – if there's any work going on to integrate with that Windows, the new Windows yeah. layer because mm-hmm. you know they don't i think right now they're using hyper v yeah like and they're using xhive on the mac but i wonder if they'll be able to do a little bit closer binding i don't know that's that's weird yeah i don't even get me started on containers that use virtualization because that just sounds like a vm to me but mm-hmm. i digress 
You know, this next story, uh, I think a lot of people are going to be excited about it. I know Noah and I have talked about this quite a bit. I'm not sure where you weigh in. Uh, but uh, folks like Popey don't, don't worry about this. Here's a Look at this. this Popey tweeted this today. Uh, he's taking apart a Netgear GS116 uh, switch and uh, getting a soldering iron out to fix this thing. But for those of us who uh, want to buy new routers ah. and run open source firmwares, TP-Link might be back on the list of possible uh, devices that uh, will run Linux. This is after a uh, FCC ruling that's going to force TP-Link to allow open source firmware. I did on not the... expect this. Yeah. And they're also going to pay a $200,000 fine. So that's really kind of something. The TP-Link settlement was announced in the midst of controversy spurred by those new FCC rules we've talked about in the past. The new right. rules for the 5 gigahertz, gigahertz band require, require router makers to prevent third-party firmwares from changing the radio frequency parameters, i.e. letting you know, blast it up and stuff like that because they're mm-hmm. worried you're going to mess with Doppler radar, I guess, uh, which that sounds legit to me. Uh, TP-Link didn't break any rules by blocking third-party firmwares. But it got attention from the FCC's Enforcement Bureau by selling routers that made it possible for users, once they load those firmwares, to circumvent power limits. Now, other manufacturers that came up with ways to, like, Linksys worked with Marvell and others to allow open source firmwares but not allow the firmware to tweak the radio transmitting. Right. Here's the thing that I kind of feel a little icky about. After admitting the violation, TP-Link halted sales of the offending devices. That makes sense, right? right. Yep. But then they issued a software update so that units already sold to consumers would comply. So they just uh, – Yeah, that is they, little... like they That's a major feature. Like if I could control the radio power – and I'm way out in the freaking boondocks, dude, right. right? If I could control the radio pre- frequency powers and maybe get a little more signal, that, that would be like the main thing I would want mm-hmm. that for. So that would be a huge bummer. Um, and it's interesting because TP-Link's violation related to 2.4 gigahertz band, but uh, their software update also precludes customers – from installing third-party software, including open-source software, to meet the new 5 gigahertz requirement. And that's that's kind of where they got in trouble. It's interesting that, that getting in trouble for that has then led to a settlement where they're required to, yeah. to keep working with open-source. Yeah, very community. much so. I, I hey, really like that development. That's great. Yeah. So, um, and hopefully they can just, like, I mean, you know, figure, figure it out on the firmware or the, and the hardware level. And just you know, before, I think people loved TP-Links. A lot, a lot of people mm-hmm, were using them mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they had great support for mm-hmm. OpenWRT. And yep, such. that's why I bought one in the past. Also, just kind of a separate thing, Imagination Technologies, which is a chip maker, is working with uh, OpenWRT and others to put the OpenWRT software into a virtual machine on these devices, which would be isolated from the radio controls. Now, I don't really know if I like that a lot, because what would be the host OS? Is it something super base, or right. is it their is crappy it like firmware? Is like a really minimal yeah. hypervisor? Yeah, what is, is that? Mm-hmm. Um, and is it safe and secure? But that is uh, that is an interesting approach, and then you can run whichever open source firmware you want in a VM, and I would think the upgrades on that are going to be pretty rock solid, because it's virtualized hardware, so it's not like that's a moving target. Right, exactly. Well, that's kind of nice. So that's pretty cool. You guys can check out more in the show notes. So, um, Wes, you found a pretty cool project that we wanted to share with the audience this week. And this is so perfect for somebody like me who's often trying to figure out ways to not use mobile data because it's like a, it's like a personal challenge of mine. Right, totally. And the when you hear of tethering, you always hear about connecting your laptop to your phone's internet connection. Exactly. That's the common use case. That's the common use case. But what if... What if my freaking laptop or desktop is plugged into a nice, solid Ethernet connection and I got a big update or something like that I want to yep. do on my phone? Wes, here is Simple RT, Simple Reverse Tethering for Android. So this is exactly that. 
it allows you to share your computer's internet connection with your Android device via a USB cable. Linux and OS X, it says, are supported. Windows is not and unlikely to be in the future. (laughs) (laughs) So you got to plug it in right now. Is it working? Does it work? It does work. Uh, Let's see. So it must be two pieces, an app on the phone, right? Yep. Right? And then then their software on your laptop. Here we go. Okay. Connect. Requires Android 4.0 or higher. Um, And did you have to – was there packages? Did you have to build something? What was Uh, that They have a pre-built – uh, APK. So I downloaded that on the phone and installed it. Um, and then that it doesn't install an app or anything. It all just runs in the background. Mm. Uh, and then on your – so you don't need root on the phone, but you do need root on the computer that you're using. Uh, then you download from GitHub. They have a thing. You need to install LibUSB. But sure, that, okay. that's the only thing I needed. Um, a simple make. And then it spits out uh, – it binds to the USB so that okay. you, you use sudo. You run dot slash simple RT. And then it waits for you to plug your phone in. You plug your phone in, and then that triggers the app, which starts a custom VPN, like through the Android VPN interface. Oh, smart. Yeah, it seems to work. I'm actually pretty impressed with that. And, it, you know, I tested it earlier uh, at work. Have you and done I was a able speed to, test? I have not done a speed test yet. That's hmm. a good question. Do you have the speed test app on there by chance? Because that would be, that'd be really interesting to know that because <laughs> you should be pretty much getting whatever our Wi-Fi could deliver your – well, of course – this what? might be USB two though. Here. Yeah, yeah, that would be the that would be the limiting factor. But even still, that would be pretty interesting. Yeah, so that's really cool. So again, it's called. Yeah, Simple I was RT. really pleased with pleased with like the Android integration. I've done a little bit of this with like IP tables and a root terminal on my phone, but it's all very hacky. And this is it's not quite all yeah. the way polished. Like if you have like a lot of custom DNS, for instance, if you're trying to like get your phone onto a VPN through an Ethernet connection only or something like that, then I think there could be some stuff improved, like maybe how. How some of like the the AP scripts set up DNS masks for you? I think something like that might go a long way, but it's already very nice, huh? You know, with uh, Android N, not too far. I mean, Ham was saying it's three days away, actually. Um, then that would be uh, that might be a way to get that download. I mean, of course, you'd probably be on Wi-Fi in most cases, but if for some weird reason you don't have Wi-Fi, but you have the machine you're sitting at has internet access still. Right. This could be a way to do, or doing a whole bunch of Android app updates, mm-hmm. or or maybe you're like in a place where you only have Ethernet, but you really want to make a, wi- a phone call, or hell, even syncing down your Spotify music. Yeah, that could be a way faster oh, way yeah, to do that because I like point. to do the extreme quality. So yeah, Wes, and you're doing this by the way on a Nexus Five running Marshmallow. Yes. Okay, so it works on anything four O all the way up to Marshmallow. Yeah, that's great. That's it, a huge range of devices. It was, it was really easy to get going. Huh? Yeah, this is some. This is right up my alley. This is right up my alley because I'm constantly gaming the system when it comes to mobile. Yeah, and you never quite know when you might want that, you know. And, and so it can just be very helpful. Hmm. Or like maybe you want to, you know, you're on a wired network, but you really want to use the cast from your phone for a specific thing on your phone that you can't do on Linux. Or and you know what I just remembered is I have had uh, I have had mobile phones one that the Wi-Fi chip died on it. And so the only thing you could use was the network, the cellular network. Right. So there you are paying for, paying for that data. It's no just, good. Yeah, it's no, no good. So this kind of thing would be perfect for that. Would be perfect. That. Huh. Simple RT. Not for retweet, but for reverse tether for Android 4.0 or higher. You know, while we're talking about mobile, this is probably a great time to mention Ting. Ting is my mobile service provider, and I really enjoy using Ting because it's only pay for what you use mobile. And because, like, I know of things, things like Simple RT, but really – you know, I have Wi-Fi at work. I have Wi-Fi at home. I have Wi-Fi at families' houses that I go to. I find that to be really all I need to just keep my bill down to an absolute bare minimum for three devices, talking 35 40 bucks. It's, and that's, you know. That's crazy. That's with three people using their phones. Uh, and, of course, uh, Rikai again, Rikai, same thing, on Wi-Fi all the time. So it's basically like his line is almost free for us. It's $6 just for the line and then your usage on top of that. There's no contract. There's no early termination fee. 
pay for what you use wireless. See, that's right there. Like it's it's a cell plan for adults. You know, there's no yeah. there's not a lot no of rules. Gimmicks. There's no gimmicks. You don't have to like worry about no some pink arbitrary shirt and leather Linux. jacket required. Yeah. They know that you use what you want. Yeah, you pay for it. It's yeah. very simple. It is, and you can get started right now by going to linux.ting.com to support this show and get a twenty five dollar discount off your first device. Or if you're going to bring a device and they have a CDMA and GSM network you can pick from, which is really cool, they'll give you that in credit in, in service. And since you're Monthly bill on average can be like twenty three bucks for a line. You're, that'll pay for more than your first month. They have really great customer service. I mean, this is like a this is like a cornerstone aspect of Ting, and they have a super nice dashboard as well. You can check it all out. They give you great controls from your phone on the web. I love their blog as well. They've just recently done a post about the Ting pricing promise. Check that out. Just start by going to linux.ting.com. They have great cord cutting info over there. Um, they have also. Uh, extra storage, how to hook up extra storage to your device, blog posts, really good ones over there. Check them out, linux.ting.com, my mobile service provider for well over two years. If you want to take the test and just see if it might work for you, go over to the how would, what would you save buttons right there on the front page when you visit linux.ting.com. Plug in your information. They make it really easy. And see how it works. linux.ting.com. Thanks, Ting. All right. So this next story is a quick mention because I've seen some people talking about it in the chat room today. And I want to give people a heads up because I don't know. I didn't see how, when this ends. Oh, oh, they're accepting entries until the 14th. So we will have time to talk about it in last. Uh, but uh, today, System76 announced they're giving a laptop away. Hey, yeah, they're those doing, are nice laptops. They're doing. Uh, they're giving away a Lemur, which is a pretty popular laptop over at System Seventy Six. It's going to be preloaded with Ubuntu, fourteen inch. They're just giving it. You giving it away. They're going to do a. Man. Yeah, you got. There's a little bit of effort though, so you have to go read the post in the show notes to find out more. But uh, it's going to be a fourteen point one inch screen with a six generation Core i three processor, four gigs of RAM, and a five hundred gigabyte hard drive, and an Intel dual band wireless AC card. Sweet. Yes, that would be a nice laptop and to you get for know free. It runs great with yeah. Linux. Yeah, so that's really cool. You can check that out. Uh, it runs Ubuntu. Uh, uh, Ubuntu. I don't know. I use Linux Mint, so I couldn't tell you. Linux ah. Mint XFCE Sarah has been released, and uh, it's a big release because it's going to be supported until twenty twenty one. If you think about it, if you're an XFCE user, you probably don't you probably don't like reloading your system a lot. Nope. So being able to install something that is a first-class XFCE implementation that is supported until 2021, that is damn attractive. Yeah. I yeah. think of a lot of, like, you know, workshop machines mm-hmm. where you just want a nice little desktop. Yep, that just runs for, for ages. Next five years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that would be, I mean, geez, that's great. So here's a couple of new things um, in XFCE Sarah edition. I wanted to uh, quickly mention, he talks a lot, Clem does in his post, he talks a lot about XApps. And remember, those XApps is this new project to produce generic applications for GTK desktop environments, forks, and et cetera. And he talks about Zed and XViewer and a bunch of the different ones in here. But he makes a comment down here that I thought was interesting, and, and it sort of reflects his attitude about this, which I found refreshing. He says, note that the GNOME apps and Mate apps and XFCE apps and that these X apps replace are still available in the repositories. You can install them side to side with X apps to compare them to decide which ones you like best. X apps do integrate better, however, with your environment, not only for not only in obvious ways with traditional interfaces, but also in the way they support desktop environments. But I do like I do like that he says, you know, you can install them side by side and see which ones you like better. Yeah, that's a good attitude. That is a good attitude when you're forking a ton of applications <laughs> uh-huh. and, and suggesting your users which, use them. Which hopefully means like, yeah, they're gonna try to compete on their merit, right? So if they are better, then people will people will use them. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was I thought that was kind of nice. Uh, anybody in the mumble room an XFCE user by chance? I'm finding that surprising. 
I find that I really mean, surprising. I used to use it when I first tried Arch on a machine, but yeah. it doesn't do what I want to do because I want to. I don't want things really simplified. I want things more complex and tweakable, like KDE. So I, I just no longer use it. I used it for quite a long time after the um, after the very first release of Unity, and I was still on Ubuntu. I switched over to XFCE, and, and I mean, at the time, I think I was in school, so I didn't have a yeah. lot of time for customization. And it was, I mean, it still is a fine desktop if that's all you need. Yeah, I I feel like um, after I looked at this release here, I thought maybe I should seriously consider the XFCE again for my workhorse machines. I love GNOME three; I've got no complaints. But you know, like I had that weird extension yeah, you're issue. You're not going to run into that. Yeah, and I just simply need this thing to just work every single time. Not that it isn't now, so I don't really have any issues right, there's now. There's no incentive, but but it is certainly a stable platform. But that just just thinking like it just feels like it would be a rock. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, well, you know, still a uh, still a Raspbian user if that counts for you know XFCE. That's true. That's mm-hmm. true. Yeah, I guess maybe Raspbian user likes to e. I, I guess yeah yeah. I guess maybe that's what it is too. Is there's just less excitement on XFCE these days. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's also a great Manjaro spin of the, with an XFC desktop. I do. Now, I enjoyed on my last road trip GNOME maps a lot. I thought having I, I went from why is GNOME wasting time making a mapping I application? I remember having the same thought. To oh, this is why GNOME's making a map because it's so nice to actually have it in a native desktop application. Totally. totally. Screw the web browser. Nah, he, I hate the web browser. Waiting for the DOM to update. It's just the worst. Nobody needs that. Nope. And plus, I can be doing my searching and looking up stuff in one window, and I can be doing my mapping in my no maps. And I was thrilled to have that along with Fedora 24 on my last road trip. And then almost the day after I got it back. It really was terrible timing. The uh, MapQuest API got pulled underneath them from underneath them, and uh, no maps just started displaying uh, developer tiles. It was kind of embarrassing, actually. It just looked awful. And Ubuntu GNOME announced they'd be dropping GNOME maps, and it just, it was... It felt like, what was maps going to do, right? Yeah. I mean, here we had this nice application and just... A real gone. shame. Just a real shame. Well, guess what? We got good news here, Wes. Uh, good, good news. Uh, things are back up and looking better uh, with uh, 3.20.4 release. They're switching away from MapQuest, uh, open API for fetching tiles, and instead they're going to start using Mapbox's API. They're using a community API key from Mapbox... And uh, Mapbox is a company, they say, with a commitment to open source and provides infrastructure will allow us to do more with maps. We are accessing the Mapbox API through a GNOME proxy ah. that will allow us to easily switch our tile provider in the future. That, see, that's the way to do it. A little also, watch everywhere there. you go. What? Yeah, well, um, I mean, yeah. So there you go. Are you saying you didn't want to tell GNOME where you are anyway, Chris? You know what, would, you know what I would like to see GNOME maps do? You know the direction I would like to take this? Imagine no maps allowing me to configure my own backend so I could point it at like OpenStreetMaps or something or my own hosted yeah. mapping server. Just the wrapper around a compatible map API. Yeah. So if it was Canonical, if Canonical had announced that they were shipping a mapping application on Ubuntu Touch that used a proxy, to proxy everywhere you go, wouldn't that be a huge controversy? Like when, A proxy to some, you know... Somewhat proprietary service. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, when they did that with the Unity Dash launcher, mm-hmm. like, we lost our collective S over that. Now, the GNOME camp goes, yeah, we're going to be proxying all of your map requests through a central proxy run by us. But don't worry about it. It's fine. And we're like, okay, cool. Good idea. That's good thinking for planning for the future, guys. I wonder, uh, I, wonder how, if, I wonder how that proxy is set up. 
Because it would, be, I mean, would it be different if they, you know, if it's a, a chef configured server and you can see the chef recipes sure, right there? Sure, sure, so that's a that good idea. Kind, I mean, you can't actually verify what's on the box, but it's a little bit more transparency. Hmm. North Ranger, uh, you got a little conspiracy bacon there. Why don't you share it with the class? I, I guess I trust Gnome more to run a proxy that could potentially snoop on my location than you know both an app, de- a game developer, and Google. Yeah, um, you know, farming out, you know, hundreds of millions of users with Pokemon, right? Uh, you know, having their location shared basically. But isn't the issue not about Pokemon and you know Diantic and all these people, but more people losing their minds on uh, you know results from Amazon, even though they're going through a proxy with Canonical? I think it was both. <laughs> you know, I, I no, knew. They, they, they were saying that it was it was. Amazon was tracking you and all this other stuff, and they're mm-hmm. letting like no, they weren't because the, the, the data never went to Amazon; it went to Ubuntu first. Yeah, so um, was, yeah. There's a, there could people, be a flip side of that. So the, I remember the first question that was asked after Canonical announced the uh, built-in search was, "Is it going to be HTTPS?" And the answer was no. Is this GNOME Maps proxy HTTPS? Why are we not asking the same questions? Mm-hmm. Why? Why is that? Why is that a thing? Right. I'm not saying that Gnome Project is doing anything wrong, and I agree with North, North Ranger. I trust them uh, 100% implicitly more than I trust mm-hmm. Google or Niantic. Right. But, but you're right. We should have like a set of standards for how we think uh, maps or other personal sharing services like that should you know, be run. I mean, is this, is, this, a- is this crazy to say that we need like a constitution for, for hosted services, and in the constitution it says like if, if we host something that tracks you or knows where you're at at all times – uh, we will make sure that it's set up and protected in these ways. I mean, mm-hmm. that feels like something that should just be – whenever I'm making the choice to either self-host like or – Like a privacy use, pledge for hosted That's a better services. term. Yeah, a privacy pledge. That's better. Yeah, because it feels – yeah, exactly. Because it feels like if I'm making the conscious decision to self-host versus use a hosted service – A lot of times it comes down to like control of your data and knowledge about where that will be. And I can't properly make that determination right now on any service. Mm-hmm. That's a tough. That's a tough thing to. That's a tough thing to sort out right now. And the only so so especially what, where it's like all the other desktops, the what the what is left of the desktop experience is becoming a lot of integrated with services. So it's kind of a prescient question we need to address in the Linux world if even GNOME is doing it. Yeah, I agree. WW, you have a thought on the pledges. The thing is, privacy pledges are pretty much said like off the top of anybody's head nowadays by whoever, and they could pledge themselves to whatever. It's actions and transparency that are more important that people need to see. They need to see, hey, what's going on with my data? Um, for me, I don't think we'll, I don't know if we'll ever see this, but I want to be able to see how the data was used and right. what you guys are doing with it rather than saying, uh, you know, having a marketing person or a social uh, community member of your team say, say this stuff. People need to see concrete evidence that you guys are doing right by the community or by them. Yeah. You know, so have you guys noticed, I mean, I just today logged in uh, to Google because uh, I was curious, what was I reading about? Oh, Mussolini. Mm. I was reading about Mussolini and I was I was curious how much of that would show up in my Google history. And there's two sets of Google history when you're a Chrome user. There's your browser history. And then there is everything Chrome sends to Google. Right. And so they actually legitimately make that manageable. And I got to – I want to – because I'm so often a skeptic of Google. I do want to mm-hmm. give them credit here. In Chrome, in your history, they say 
you should also check what Google services know about you. And you click that. They make it very obvious. They really do tell you what Google knows about you. Like they know. They And I just showed, it showed up right away. Like it shows that I listen to Pocket Cast right. on my drive. They know what time I open up Pocket Cast and how long I listen to a podcast. Every morning I drive into work. Wow. It is something. Mm-hmm. And I, and I don't, yeah, there, I don't, is that, there is that angle too because there's like I think a certain component of Google of how we perceive Google's, you know, awareness and creepiness, et cetera, that like – even if they are doing, I'm not saying that necessarily that they are, but even if they are doing everything correctly in terms of prompting you for right. what you want, they, we just, there's so much a part of our lives that yeah. you can, even if you've said yes to all these things, you forget about it. And sometimes you realize again how much they yeah. do know. Yeah. And you're like, ooh. Antonis, you have a tip for uh, users to sort of see what Google knows about them. Yeah. So uh, with a Google dashboard, you can go take a look and um, see what like uh, what Google tracks, if you have an Android fo- Android phone especially, you can see what uh, where you've been with the Google Maps. It will show your location history. And also, even if you use Google Now with your voice, right, it right. even shows you previous voice searches. You can listen to them. And it's kind of like a diary of all the all the places you've been. I hear it back and I'm like, oh, yeah, that was when I was in the car with the kids. And they were yeah. yakking in the background the whole time. <laughs> yeah, the dashboard's creepy and also very nice feature. Mm-hmm. But it leaves me with this. And the no maps thing was also another lesson. Do I have to be an extremist? Do I have to be like all self-hosting or bust? Right. I mean, because that just seems unrealistic at some point. There's a lot of services. At some point, you just, you know, convenience wins. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the that is that's something we talked about a little bit last week. How sometimes open source loses when your time becomes more precious than your um, values about software freedom. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I still sort of with every single service – have to go through that evaluation, right? Because there's like a certain amount of you know, yes, it, it and maybe and it can be I think okay if you if you consciously value you're like well these the thing that these people are offering is is they have their own little layer on top of these open source tools that they do for me and I like that because I just don't have time to do it. But you do have to kind of value like well do, do they contribute back to those open source tools that I might otherwise be using? Are they a good citizen in open source? Do I think they're going to vanish? Are they going to change models? It's a lot of things to think about. Minimac, you have a point about uh, once you have privacy settings set up correctly on Google, they manage to seem to stick with it, right? Yeah, they sync with all devices. You see, I also have an Android TV and all that stuff, so I have a lot of Android stuff now. And once you you configure your privacy settings, all devices are synced and applied to these settings. I find that pretty cool. Yeah, that is nice. That is nice that they they. They legitimately at least seem to make an effort to make it clear and, and coherent. And you can com- compare and contrast that to what Facebook does, where they're not, it's still not yes, clear right. and it's confusing. And you they can, change it all the time. Yeah. 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 You really have to dig these, all these settings once. There are a lot of settings you can change. It is, you know, it is honestly to say that a hosted service that somebody else manages for you is maintenance free and doesn't require your time to keep it going and running is false. Because when you have services like Google that know as much about you, you do kind of need to go in there and manage it from time to time and see mm-hmm. what they're tracking, see if you're comfortable with that because they're always adding stuff. And the thing about hosted services too is they may add stuff, they may remove stuff, and you have no say in the matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chris, I think ultimately to decide whether you need to do that evaluation or not, just ask yourself, are you the product here? Right. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting yeah. metric. Yeah, I think I, I read a book that says that as time goes on, more and more average citizens will start asking themselves that question. But I so far, I haven't really seen that play out um we'll see I don't, I don't know i actually speaking of google so the rest of the show or not the rest of the show that's not true at all the next segment of the show is going to be kind of google heavy but it's actually sort of using some google 
bypassing some Google services. It's the Chromecast, but not using Google. So before we get off self-hosting entirely, it would be a good time to mention DigitalOcean. And you can support the show by going over to DigitalOcean and reusing our promo code Unplugged. It's one word. It's lowercase. You apply it to your account balance. Now, I, I think you know, in response to this conversation that you and I were just having, probably the key thing about DigitalOcean that I think has really contributed to their success is that it's really fast to get going. It's simple. It's straightforward. Oh, yeah. And so the cost of trying something like a project like NextCloud or Rocket Chat or GitLab is the speed plus the per hour billing kind yeah. of stuff. And in like in, in like the case of like GitLab, the entire application stack, if you just want to just deploy the entire stack on an LTS distro, is ready to go. And you just plug in the, the details you need and it's set up. Bam. So that is really giving people the opportunity to try out self-hosting in a way that doesn't mean – a huge time You're not provisioning a, a bare metal server. You're not worrying about yeah. colo. Yeah, and and look at this, look at this pricing. And so you can see, like, you could really once you get going, you could really have something that is just running all the time. Uh, I love this middle plan here: three cents an hour, two gigs of RAM, two core processor, forty that gigabyte core, SSD. That's really what does it. Yeah, that's. I mean, wow, right? That when you when you have super fast, they're all SSDs. They have really great internet connections. They have data centers all over the world. And when you have all of that. On a machine with two core processors, if it's for you, your business, or your family, that is going to be a screaming machine, and it's really easy to step up and upgrade. And if you want to play with something like NextCloud and your storage starts to grow, that is a, it's a totally different story now on DigitalOcean than it was even a couple of months ago because they have serious block storage now that's, they're out there that is going to make it possible for you to grow your storage on your droplet as you need at a really nice price. Highly available block storage. You attach it to your uh, droplet, and of course, because it's DigitalOcean, it's SSD backed block storage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I talk a lot about the DigitalOcean interface and how freaking great it is. And I often will mention their API. So this week, I thought I'd give you a few examples of why they really just have one of the best APIs out there. It's it's well documented. They they iterate on it as part of their entire platform feature set. And then because it's so clear and because it's documented, there's a ton of nice code oh, you can take yeah. advantage of already. I like this uh, Runbook I.O. project, which uses DigitalOcean's API. It's available. It's free. You can grab it. And it monitors and automatically resolves issue with if this, then that style automation for your droplets, which could be neat. Like reactions from anything uh, like restarting Apache, rebooting a DigitalOcean droplet completely. Um, it is... It is what you get if Nagios and if the, if then then that had a baby. If if that was, those like those a, two things came together and had a mad passionate love session, this is the child they would produce. That sounds like a great recipe for not getting woken up in the middle of the night. <laughs> it is exactly that. Yeah. Also, this is kind of neat. Uh, I thought this was kind of cool. A DigitalOcean dynamic DNS oh, project. Hey, okay, that is neat. Yeah, the script allows you to dynamically update a DO domain name A record. Like a mini dynamic DNS update. See, those are all things that you could write for yourself. Yeah. And because, but because it's so easy with DigitalOcean, someone's done it for you. Yeah, it's cool. It's right there. It is really cool. Check, check them out. DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code Unplugged to support the show to keep us going and get yourself a $10 credit and try it out for a little while. DigitalOcean.com. Thanks, guys. And if you guys see a really cool uh, open source project that uses the DigitalOcean API, please do tweet it at me. So before we get into the whole discussion about the rest of the Chromecast stuff and um, Cody stuff, I, I thought maybe we'd take a moment and talk about why we're discussing this at the moment. Because just recently it was revealed 
how dramatic the Chromecast sales have been. Google has not traditionally shared numbers on this, but in a conference call, they were confronted and Sindar Pichai actually answered. Um, when responding to questions, he revealed that the company has shipped 30 million Chromecast units since its release back in 2013, which includes all the different iterations, even the Chromecast audio. 30 million units. Do you have one? I do. I yeah. actually have two. Yeah, I have two as well. I, in fact, I've even bought one for friends before because oh, yeah. they didn't have anything to like watch, like YouTube or anything on their TV. And I bought it for parents or mm-hmm. family or – yep. We have one here at the studio, which has been great when we have people over and we have a big group and people want to watch different YouTube videos. Uh, my NVIDIA Shield TV I talked about on Linux Action Show this Sunday has Chromecast support built into it. A lot of apps have Chromecast I know support. There's some stuff for like, uh, you know, lots of stuff for like having them run displays. Android N, I believe, has a lot of more, a lot more Chromecast stuff built into the OS level. Oh, yeah. uh, so I thought, okay, let's talk about ways that us Linux users can get content from our Linux boxes onto Chromecast. And maybe if the mumble room knows of some open source hardware replacements or alternatives to Chromecast, we can talk about those too. But I want to start with the easy button. So that way, if you're listening and you want something super applicable to you and you just you, uh, and you just want that right off the top, I've used this from time to time. I don't keep it installed in Chrome when I'm not using it. But it's video streaming for Google Chrome and it allows you to load any local video file on your Linux box. It opens up as like an app inside your Chrome browser. You can open – then you can use the local file browser to pick any local file and it will stream this to your Chromecast from your Linux box. This is just a quick, dirty install it in 30 seconds. You can be streaming to a Chromecast. It doesn't go out to the Google account and servers and send it down. It just goes directly from your laptop to your Chromecast. So that's, that's just a – that's a Chrome plugin. But that's not super cool and that's not Linux specific. And you have to pay for some things if you want more features yeah, for it. Yeah, there is something you have to not pay that, for. Not I don't that it even, doesn't deserve that. I'm not saying that. but I can't even remember what it was you have to pay for because I just use it for the basic feature set. But CastNow could be another option. So check this out. CastNow is a command line utility. Hey, there we go. Hey. To uh, playback media files to your Chromecast device. It supports playback of local video files, videos on the web, and torrents too. You can also reattach a running playback session, which is really nice. So it's CastNow. And uh, it's just really simple syntax. You do cast now and then the, the directory or, or that has the videos in it. And you can play the entire directory or, or to the specific file or you drop in a URL to like an MP4 file or a torrent file. You know, I've had some better luck sometimes like persnickety uh, HLS streams, that sort of stuff. Cast now seems to work pretty well with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. So cast now, just a simple tool to install. And uh, it'll, you can do that from the command line. And I know how much we love our command line utilities. So that seemed like a good one. Uh, then there was this one that came in. A contender that's getting some update and coverage on web update this week. Stream to Chromecast. Stream to Chromecast, the number two, is a command line Chromecast media streamer for Linux. The tool can transcode to unsupported formats in real time and play them on the Chromecast. It can also do audio, so it can send audio only. It can transcode any format not supported by the Chromecast using FFmpeg or libav. Provides basic control commands like pause, unpause, stop, and playback. Uh, you can do specific devices when you have multiple Chromecasts on your network, which is nice. Yeah. Supports passing custom transcoder parameters to FFmpeg and supports specifying the port to use for streaming media. For audio-only files, no metadata is displayed on the Chromecast at the moment. But So these are two different command line utilities that will take video files or audio files and send them to your – now, have you tried stream? Uh, I haven't, but after this show, I think I will. Yeah. That's really nice. That's really – that is – that is kind of changing my opinion about the Chromecast a little more, especially since I have it built into the Shield TV. I think it's mm-hmm. really nice. Because they, the, they are like so many of the services where it's a little bit like, well, 
it works great and Netflix and YouTube obviously have great support for it but there's some like outliers where you're like ah, it is frustrating you don't have full access you don't have root on it right so this does help with that Pyrocast what's this North Ranger actually it was just you know uh, me doing a little bit of googling a few days ago actually trying to figure out my Cody box on a Raspberry Pi to extend some functionality mm. I haven't tried it yet so I'm curious if anybody else has found a similar solution for like LibreLAC or OpenELEC uh, type distributions. Yeah, uh, like so you want to uh, you want to be able to have Chromecast like functionality um, with Cody is what you're saying. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. You know, I believe there could be somebody working on such a thing right now. Doctor Tunnell in the Mumble Room, aka formerly known as Rotten Corpse, sir. Could you perhaps have something up your sleeve just like this? Well, I mean, that's convenient. That uh, <laughs> convenient with a K, even. Hey, uh, cast for Cody is what I'm working on, which is a script that does exactly that, and it adds um, be able to stream live uh, live video through like Twitch or um, RTMP Ooh. streams or anything like that. Uh, it also supports local videos through like Samba. And uh, I recently uh, fixed some things that you can now do torrent streaming. So oh. if you have like a, a meta link for some kind of video, it'll um, like the, the like the torrents that JB has, it'll play those through that. Cool. And it also supports uh, multiple devices. So you can have multiple uh, Raspberry Pis with Kodi on it or open a leg even. And uh, a lot more features that I'm working on too. It supports about 15 current add-ons for Cody, including YouTube, Twitch, Daily Motion, and many more. So and this, of course, Jupiter Broadcasting. Hey-o. Hey. Um, so the interface for this is a command line utility as well? Uh, it has both a GUI and a command line. The GUI is very simple. It uses uh, Zenity to provide that. Okay, nice. And like it's just like, a, hey, select the file you want to send to the Cody machine? And yeah, then well, the, it uses the uh, file manager to do the local file sending. So you just right-click and send it to the file, through, oh. send it through the script to your, your Kodi device. So what is the technology behind the scenes that's making my desktop talk to the Kodi um, software? Well, it's, it's basically just a bash script on one end, mm-hmm. uh, a JSON API on the Kodi end, and then whatever file manager you have that supports... Um, you know, Send adding to extensions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but what I'm what I'm trying to get to is like, is there like some DLNA standard that Cody supports? Universal plug and play, like Discovery. Like, what is what's happening? Is it dy- a dynamic DNS? What's happening on the back end to make to make my Linux box capable of sending a video file over the network to Cody? What what two technologies or whatever multiple technologies are connecting to make that happen? Well, the actual sending of it is uh, pushing pushing the data, the signal for, uh, through curl to the Kodi box. And the Kodi takes whatever signal you give it and then applies its effect. So technically, like if you're watching a YouTube video, it's not uh, going through your computer first. It's just sending the signal to play the YouTube video on your Kodi box. Oh. So it's just going from YouTube straight to Kodi. How does it – so how does it – okay. So how does it handle the scenario if one time I'm sending it an MP4 file and the next time I'm sending it a URL? It detects on it's, – it runs scans based on what you're sending. Cody, so it'll, and it'll, Cody, it'll, already it'll, has, Cody already has facilities to do that. Huh. 
Co- no, Cody has the uh, ability to take the signal in. Oh, the script your is, is actually ah. scanning everything. So, so is, it, you is, send it possible, it, is it possible for you to send like torrent metadata? So like if I'm, say, pulling down TechSnap and, uh, via torrent, will it pull down like the episode name and all that kind of stuff and show that on Cody? Yes. Nice. <laughs> wow. Damn, that is slick. Now, what do you think, like future way out, totally down the road possibilities, like to have this show up as like, uh, to show up in the share sheet on Android as like an option to send a file to when I open up in VLC or something like that. Um, I haven't working on. I wasn't working on Android support. Uh, basically, just Linux desktop support is yeah. the only thing I. I is, but would there would be anything that but, would prevent that. I mean, would that would be theoretically possible? Maybe. Yeah, it would be possible for sure. Yes. Yeah, that'd be really. So nice. There's there's some features that you can already do that on Android with. Um, yeah. I'm pretty sure the core. The K O R E uh, remote has some, some oh, okay. features like that. Okay, I'm not sure if, uh, how how well it does it or how um, extensive it is in comparison, but it, I think it does work for like the basics. So is this is this uh, so this requires no changes or, or add-ons to Cody at all for this to work? No, it doesn't. Um, some things require the add-ons. So, for example, I mean, you're going to add these add-ons anyway. So, if you wanted to watch YouTube on Cody, you got to install the YouTube add-on. Sure, uh, and it uses the YouTube add-on to send the signal to sure okay so basically what it does is that um that it takes it figures out what you want to send it through the script then it creates this the signal uh in the syntax that cody wants then says uh this is a youtube url so send it through the youtube add-on specifically so that way it just immediately jumps to the add-on and if you have it if you don't have the add-on, it will tell you that you you can't play this 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 design for this particular add-on okay oh that's Uh, nice if you do have it, it will just start start playing. Huh? I can't. I can't wait to try it. That's that's really nice. Um, I think uh, for me, I'm kind of in a position where I don't. I didn't realize this, but using Android TV, not to make this about Android TV, but by using Android TV, my Kodi box natively already supports Chromecast built into it. But it wouldn't be. I'd have, but then when it when it when I use that functionality, it drops me out of Kodi. So this would allow right. me to stay in the Kodi. Oh, app. that would be perfect. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. How do we ch- how do we find out more about this? Uh, I just sent a link to the into the uh, oh, chat. Oh, perfect! Room. There it is. Yes. Thank oh, okay. You very I will much. put a I'll put a link in that there. Uh, what I like to call show notes. Did you know we have show notes, Wes? Yes, we do. Oh, yeah, that's true. One more, just one more quick question. Yeah. I wanted to answer uh, Dream's question about Ubuntu Touch. It should work in Ubuntu Touch. Oh yeah! Oh gosh! Hell that, yeah! That makes sense. I like that. I like that a lot, and I like that it already works at Jupiter Broadcasting. Boom! <laughs> that's great. A bash script tool for creating for casting media to Cody Entertainment Center. I uh, so I want to take a little time now to talk about making Cody great again. Not that it's not already great, but I want to make my Cody great again. I, I, you guys know me. I I love trying to use open source solutions whenever possible. But every now and then, that that a little voice in the back of my head goes, Chris, just just set up Plex, just set up Plex. It'll be much easier because then your kids can stream the files they want. It automatically takes care of the metadata problems you've been having. You don't have to worry about that. Just set up Plex. But now that I'm, uh, I've moved and I'm resetting up my home entertainment system and I'm going to be resetting up network storage uh, and I'm reevaluating anything that requires an internet connection top to bottom. And one of the things I don't ever want to have to really deal with is – I sit down to watch TV and I can't because right. we're somewhere where we don't have internet connection. I just want my media to work. I just want my TV and to normally work. Normally when you're in that position, you've had a long day. You just you want to yeah. unwind. The last thing yeah. you want to do is get up and fix whatever. Likely wrong. like if I'm on a road trip, I've been driving all day long. Exactly. And, and You need to put your feet up. 
And Cody is fast. It works great with local media. It's the best playback interface. Mm-hmm. It just really is. Got, it's got a great Smooth. UI. It has great support for like tons of good skins. IR control. Yep. You know. Yep. Yep. Lots of great add-ons. Including... Oh, the skins are some of those skins are just beautiful. Yeah. There's a new one coming. There's a Jupiter Broadcasting app. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm going to be migrating from Plex to Cody. And there's a lot that comes with that, yeah. including it's a different paradigm. Uh, it is, and it, it, I, I do have to rename some of my media. I have to change how I've done some of that. Uh, and there's different backends I can use for Cody too. If I want a shared Cody central database, if I want to take advantage of streaming, so I want to I want to chat about chat about all these different options. Plus, get some of the virtual lugs uh, ideas and takes on some of this. It's uh, it's kind of a, a new adventure for me because Cody is a really cool, super impressive open source application that I have played with on and off every single release. Since it was XBMC on a hacked Xbox. Right, exactly. I really have. <laughs> Humble origins. But I have never really put, you know, 12 terabytes worth of media into it and tried to get playback and, and, uh, and metadata synced aco- across three television screens and then remote streaming for people on tablets. I've never gone that far into it, right? I've never actually, like, really integrated it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm – that's the route I'm taking now. Um, and uh, it does involve sort of reassessing how I have things set up. And if it's something you've ever considered doing or if you have tips on, I'd love to get your input. I'm going to mention right now our friends over at Linux Academy. Linux Academy is where you got to go to get your basics and then work your way up to the advanced topics. If you're thinking about getting some certs, this is a great resource for you. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. They have self-paced in-depth video courses on every Linux cloud and DevOps topic. They have hands-on scenario-based labs. They give you experience on real servers. They have learning plans that allow you to pick a course and set a time frame to fit your schedule and your learning goals. They have labs that spin up on demand. They have instructor mentoring, full-time human instructors happy to advise and answer questions, nuggets, tiny little sparks of wisdom that go deep into a single topic, iOS and Android apps so you can study on one of your devices when you're on the go, custom randomized decks of study cards that can be forked and improved by the community, a community that's stacked full of Jupiter Broadcasting members, study guides, lesson audio, personal notebooks, and tools that help you study. You pick from your distribution to adjust the courseware and the servers, and their system can evaluate you while you perform tasks on their server to give you real-time feedback. With hands-on guides that give you real-world experience, the feedback system, the study tools, and the learning plans that allow you to pick your availability, nobody can touch Linux Academy. And they're growing like crazy. They just announced a major, major partnership with a real, actual, physical school. This is, this is something they've been growing on more and more recently, and I think it's kind of an interesting way to take the Linux Academy hands-on training experience and offering it to students at a traditional university-level class. Uh, and they're getting real college credits for it. It's fascinating. They have more information over on their blog. They've got the best tools to prepare you for search in a variety of Linux, AWS, OpenStack, DevOps, Azure, and big data topics, if you're searching for those certs, that's a great platform for this, too. LinuxAcademy.com slash Unplugged. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Unplugged program. Now, I want to start with the obvious. This is like the due diligence segment of the show. Like I, right. I have to mention this part, so as I'm contractually obligated to reference you to the Cody Wiki on naming video files and TV shows correctly. So this is the canonical guide by the project that's being updated all the time. They give you hierarchy examples, et cetera, et cetera, to follow. This is sort of the golden standard. So that is linked in the show notes right at the top of this segment. 
if you're going to get into this. So have you any experience like going through and naming this stuff? Well, this I've is... always, for MB, I've always used FileBot. Tell me about FileBot, Wes. Uh, it's a, it has Tell a... me about FileBot. FileBot is a script that... Uh, oh, really? Yeah, and it has a, uh, well, it has some parameters, specific parameters they call... FileBot.net. Uh, automated Media Center, and so... Is this it? This? This? Is it right here? Is this it? Yeah, that, With looks, a GUI? that looks right. I think it's a Java, Java program, oh, actually. Oh, snap, son. And here, let me throw in the Automated Media Center link right there, which is kind of kind of around a forum, but it works very well. Um, you kind of pull down your, you know, you pull down your torrents or oh. Usenet or whatever, you know, however you have your media. Uh-huh. You then you run it on that folder. You can set it up to auto run. I'm sure you could use something like I Notify Wait if you wanted to do it that way, or mm. a System D timer or anything. So this sounds this sounds uh, like something that you could plug in with a Usenet downloader and have it yes, automatically, absolutely. or like you know some torrent clients yeah. uh, support triggering programs to run that kind of thing. So nice. you can also have support for running things. So like you can have it use um, ButterFS ref links. You can have it make sim links when it cop- this organizes. This is never things, really something I ever links. had to worry about with Plex. Like everything I just download or back up and I throw in there and I name somewhat correctly. Yeah, Plex seems to grab it and nail it every single time. Like it seems to be really good at that. I think some people use it with Plex too. At least I know that's what I've heard. Well, about Well, so I was thinking about trying out Tiny Media Manager, which oh. is kind of the same thing. Does a scan and helps you uh, manage the file naming and all that. Tiny Media Manager, um, a multi OS media management tool. So what I'm thinking, right, is I got to get the I got to get the original set of media correct first. Exactly. I got to go through a, a lot of files, set. lots of seasons of crap and all that stuff that I love. Just you know, stuff that I treasure, but. Maybe I have I have sort of let the automated system manage the naming of it, and this looks like a great interface to kind of explore that, and make sure everything checks out. I like the, that it has a yeah. GUI. That's great. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, and it does look like it's pretty straightforward to use too. Um, so that's sort of what I've found mm-hmm. so far in how to sort of set up my and prep my Cody library. Um, I don't know if anybody in the uh, mumble room has tips for managing Cody. So I and and just to give you you know a, a picture here, uh, I. I have been attempting to sort of move stuff in to see what just works without having to just sort of manage it. Right. And it's pretty hit and miss so far. Mm. So it hasn't been perfect. Right. I think one of the things that I want to sort of transition to is talking about some of the back-end solutions mm-hmm. you can use here. The uh, ones that I've I've gotten feedback on are obviously MB back-end for Cody and Plex back-end for Cody. Wes, have you messed with the MB backend for Cody? And what's the advantage? What's the reason? Why would I do that? Not just use Cody's built-in database. Uh, it, well, I used it to share my MB library with my parents. So I installed Cody on a NUC at their house and uh, VPNed our two networks together. And then I connected Co- the MB plugin for Cody with my MB server. And so I could then have local media there to, uh, for them if they want. But like the NUC had a limited hard drive space, right? So then anything at my house was, it just looked like it was right in the Cody database. They could play it. It was is transparent to them. So uh, for me, it seems like the advantages of using MB on the back end or Plex would be that uh, I can let let MB and Plex scan the media, manage that, set up the libraries. Mm -hmm. You also get the web interface. To go in and correct mistakes or watch it and stream it myself, which is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I can then sync watch status across my Kodi instances. Does that work okay? It, it did seem to. Um, I, I made multiple users. Uh, you know, uh, there was a little bit of an issue, I think, like with how you do it. And I think if you want to have multiple users, there was kind of some workarounds you had to do because I think by default it syncs it into the info files. But there are, there are some options there. Interesting. So that's uh, – MB is definitely and, – and the nice I thing was, is – I was very pleased with how smoothly it integrated. And if you have a good link to your MB backend, 
playback was seamless. So the other one I'm considering a lot since I have an existing Plex database, but I'm, I probably would not. I'm probably not going to go this route. But one that I am looking at, and it was pretty pretty strongly recommended in the subreddit after last this weekend, is Plex Cody Connect (PKC). It combines the best front-end media player, Kodi, with the best multimedia back-end server, Plex. And I do, I do have like a lifetime Plex pass or something like that. So right. that's well, and also... isn't the back-end of Plex open source? It's the front-end that is oh. closed source? So that would be nice. I'm not sure if that's um, still the case, but at one time wasn't that The, the front-end and the back-end are no longer open source. Mm. The ah, front-end okay. used to be open source, and they decided to um, whack that. basically hire someone to make it closed. Now, uh, the Plex backend for Kodi supports movie and TV shows and pictures and music. Um, it's, it automatically downloads the artwork. It does all the stuff that you'd expect, including the transcoding and the streaming. There's a few issues, like uh, uh, when, you view, when you toggle the view state of an item, you have to resync. Kodi has to rescan the library before it sees that change on another Kodi box. But it seems like it's sort of the best if, you, if you're familiar with Plex. You get the management of Plex that does seem to have pretty good metadata matching, mm-hmm. at least in my experience so far, um, at least for how I have my files named, with the Kodi front end. Yeah. So I'm really – that's something else I'm, I'm sort of – I'm chewing on. I don't know. If anybody out there has tried it, I'd love to hear your feedback, linuxactionshow.reddit.com, and, uh, and let me know. Uh, Mr. Tunnell or Dr. Tunnell over there, you have you must. I mean, you're developing Kodi add-ons and and things for Kodi. You must have a decent Kodi setup. Can you describe it a little bit? How do you have it? Are you just Samba server shares? Are you accessing local files? What's been sort of your tried and true method to keep it working? Uh, yeah, basically a Samba server. Here's one of the nice things: the Plex Media and I think MB server backends support swapping out local file paths if you turn it on. So you can turn on when you when you click a file, instead of using like the Plex HTTP path to the file, you can have it use your Samba share in the background. So it'll mm-hmm. do like a file that way, which is really nice and fast. So it's sort of that's sort of cool too. I was I use the um, Samba I use Samba for the, the storing the thing. Uh, but I use Raspberry Pi to push it to the to just use the, the open a leg on Raspberry Pi. Oh that's great. And <laughs> There's also this thing, like there's this uh, adapter called the Flurk. Oh, the Flurk is, is awesome. What is the Flurk? So awesome. What is the Flurk? It's a little dongle that it gives you a, a like a, a regular remote, like a TV remote. Oh, okay. There, I put it in the IRC there. Um, uh, will you drop that in the uh, show notes too? There, absolutely. So here's my really dumb Cody 101 question: Is is a shared like backend database the only way for me to have the really the only thing I want? truly is synced watch status. I do like the idea of being able to remotely stream files, but that's secondary. Mm-hmm. What I really, really want is for the TVs to all see what files have been watched. So if I'm watching Mr. Robot or Silicon Valley, which are my two shows I only watch really, but that's just, when I watch those, I want to be able to watch them and have them marked as watched. And run downstairs, you hit play, yes. and it's, it's the same thing. So, and um, bearing in mind that I'm on, Andro- I'm, on, I'm on both ends, I'm on an Android TV box. It seems like there's a lot of effort, unless I want the remote streaming capabilities. It seems like it's a lot of effort just to get synced watch status across them. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Anyways, so I don't I don't use the the synced watch status. So I I mean I I just use the I only have the one device anyway. Well, I have multiple devices for testing of making the multi device work, mm-hmm. but I only have one that I care about. So I don't uh, I couldn't really help with that one. Yeah. The other nice thing having a central back end would be if it if if Cody misidentifies something, I fix it in one spot. Yes, that's true. That's nice too. Hmm. Yeah, I've I've played with MB and I and so far I like MB for 
the the functionality what you're talking about um i haven't rolled it out like in a big scale or anything because i don't need it but i have played with it and it seems to work as advertised yeah yeah i'll I'll second that uh you know my uh cody on raspberry pi 3 plus an mb server back end and i was evil even able to stream uh 720p or have mb mb downsample to 720p and stream to a raspberry pi box at my dad's house 300 miles away over my uh, Comcast internet that with a 10 megabit upload. Hey, you know, that's pretty slick. Uh, from a Raspberry Pi? Uh, yeah, I love it. I'm really leaning... There's so many options. It's awesome. The other thing it looks like with the MB back on, uh, add-on, or to do the MB back end, is it, and Wes, maybe you could tell me if I'm wrong, but it looks like all I really have to do is there's, there's already an existing add-on yeah, you just all install the add-on, configure it to point to and your do server. I have, do I, is it already in, like, if I just go in Cody, is it in the main list I right believe, there? I believe so. And then yeah. you just have... It, sh- it should be in the main list. It's also created by the MB team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that is also another reason why I really like that long-term. And, the, and it gives you a GUI where you put in the MB server info and stuff like that yep. right there. And so it's that, I think, when I'm working from an Android TV set-top box, I don't feel like, I hate Android's file system. I don't want to dig around on that. <laughs> exactly. It's right. a mess. So that's kind of appealing. Um, plus, MB is open source through and through, and it seems like that's a better match with an open source media server. Mm-hmm. And I think MB also, the MB backend, also supports swapping out the local file paths so I could use my Samba shares. Yeah, totally. Mm. I'm getting really excited. You know, it's it's been a long time since I've reevaluated how I do this. I set this up. And it's kind of a big decision, not because it's that important, but just because like yeah, you, you really aren't going to come back to it for a long time if it's working. So There's that. Right. Once you set it up, you don't want to mess with it. And two, I, I am not mature enough as an adult to be over that embarrassment that I feel when... Uh, so this happened this weekend. So this weekend, we were in Leavenworth, Washington with no internet connection. Oh, yep. And we have Plex on a uh, set-top box in the bedroom, and we have Plex on a set-top box in the living room of Lady Jupes. I use these terms loosely. And the living room, NVIDIA Shield, has a Plex media server locally running on it. That's how I currently do this uh, at home. And without an internet connection, the Plex front end in the bedroom can't just go out and make the roundabout connection and play the local file. I don't know why it's supposed to. It is supposed to. But it wouldn't. That's really annoying. And so there we are. And and so I'm like, okay, let's watch the movie. And this is where Noah's voice is in the back of your head. And you're like, oh. So then I'm like, okay, from now on, I'm just going to, I'm going to set this up and I'm going to do local file paths and I'm done with this. Totally. So I think that's, I think that's going to seal the deal on MB. And then, and then just not have to worry about it. Because when I, I, when I do watch TV like a couple of times a week, it's like my sort of unwind, relax. I do it when I'm totally worn out and there's nothing else more productive I'd be doing anyways. I'm like, all right, time to allow myself a little chill out exactly. time. And to get frustrated not build it when that thing just sits there and spins and spins and spins on the – it's like, okay. So the other nice part about using MB or Plex is yeah. that you also then get Chromecast support if you True. are somewhere where you're like, True. well, I really want to do this, but I don't have my Cody set up with yeah. me. But you have a Chromecast. Boom. Yeah. Hmm. I'm excited to set this all up again. It's been I a long know, time. Right. And uh, it makes my – Actually. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry about that. I'm actually looking at the MB's plugins, and it actually has an MB Cody Sync GUI plugin built in there. Yeah. Install it. Yep. Go right to it. Yeah, I know. It looks really straightforward. It looks right. it looks like, and then you're using two great open source projects together. Yeah. So it's just I have the only the only thing that's the only hesitation I have is I have had really great experience with Plex. I have a Plex Pass, and I have friends that I'm sharing my Plex libraries with already. And they're pretty good. I mean, for being 
partially proprietary. They're pretty good. I mean, they employ that MPV developer. That's I mean, true. like, they, yeah. they seem like good yeah. citizens. Yeah, and they have anyway. kicked up some upstream code. So mm-hmm. that's, yeah, that is, they, um, but they're not, they're not MB, though. But they're not MB, right. <laughs> we live in interesting times, yeah. Chris. I know. It, it, it's, I, I know it doesn't, for me, I'm not trying, that's not like some big problem I'm trying to solve. Right. It's a fun challenge to get to, like, relook at my home storage and now try to do it in a way that's, like, mobile and low power. You get to play architect, sysadmin, yeah. like, you, all these yeah. things. Yeah. And try to do it in a way that's going to be, like, Long, long-lasting, sustainable, low, low maintenance. maintenance. Uh-huh. Yes, and that's the trick, and it's that's the perfect like trifecta if you can pull it off, and that's exactly what you want for your home media system. And the the thing that I think that really has me fired up about it is, um, just spending a couple of months in Kodi using local files on the Nvidia Shield. I have I have just I have just grown such a new appreciation for this open source project. Um, that it, that it's is been going for so long, and it's, yeah, it, it's very polished. And it's like I, I really respect some of the some of the decisions they've made recently because I think they're really following some interesting trends. And there's more and more better hardware out there all the yes. time. And and then it feels like if this is something I can really get my head around, then down the road I can start experimenting with Raspberry Pis running. Exactly. Yeah, and then it's especially like, with all those uh, things Wimpy was telling us about uh, mm-hmm. compiling with better video support. Yeah, exactly. And you know the thing that makes me think about that is it's a really easy, sustainable, long term way when like a family member wants a, wants something like this after they Ooh, check add out, them right into your pow. into your network. Yep. Yes, exactly. So it could be really nice, and it could be uh, it could be a really fun, sustainable uh, home project. So I'll give you guys an update when I actually put it all together. I'm going to start experimenting with stuff over the next few weeks and then figure out how I'm doing the back-end storage. And then – well, I actually probably have to figure that out sooner than later, really. And then i got to rename all the media. But it's a good problem. Huh. It's a good problem it to have. It is a good problem I'm looking to forward to it. And we have links to all a bunch of stuff in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. And if you have any experience in this area, I would love to hear it. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com. Go chime in. Go chime in. There's and, never uh, too many – too many cooks in this kitchen. No, I've been, I've been getting some. I've been getting. I've been getting. Um, I've been getting mixed responses. But I've been getting mixed responses. I, mm-hmm. Some people are, are uh, yeah, but uh, a lot of folks have been very helpful. Totally. So it's really cool, and uh, it's pretty exciting. Be all end all. We're very excited about all these open source and it's, projects. It's neat to rediscover, like uh, to rediscover and re-embrace something that I that I haven't that I've I've observed but haven't really fully dived into right. for a long exactly. time. Exactly. That's that's sort of a fun discover aspect just of it as well. Cool, it is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That brings us to the end of at least the official part of this week's show. Episode 156 wraps up. We'd love your feedback, your responses, your topic ideas at linuxactionshow.reddit.com. Your feedback also is welcome at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. And a huge part of this show is our virtual lug and our live chat room. Find out our live times at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And then just head over to jblive.tv during that live time, which is 2 p.m. Pacific, and hang out in the, in the chat room or do bang mumble and get the mumble server info just join us Hang any out. way you can absolutely man i can't wait till next week see you right back here next tuesday
You know, in some ways, I feel like the whole media center topic has has been done over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. But in other ways, I feel like it's it's sort of re-energized in the sense that there is cooler hardware available than we've ever had. Yes. This way, like yes. the stuff is getting the embedded stuff is getting powerful enough to actually do this. I feel like ARM's coming up, Intel's getting yeah. cheaper and smaller. It's yeah. like there's a lot of those middle range devices. And right. on the back end, like hard drives are getting big for cheap. Uh, I think was it Seagate now has a 10 terabyte hard drive Whoa. you can buy. And which means, what that really means is their eight terabyte hard drives are now completely reasonable yes, in price. Exactly, right? Eight, eight terabytes in a single drive. You know, you put That's three a lot of, of Star Trek. Woo! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's like this confluence of super well priced, really powerful front end hardware and an abundance of soft, free software yeah. that you can just use it to manage all that. at all levels yeah. from getting this content automatically off the internet from backing it up off your own optical media yep. to managing it and, and then and then on top of it like this the the seamless integration now with things like youtube and torrents and all this stuff that makes online media at the yes. same level as all the other stuff everything's on the same level playing field and cody is in a perfect intersection of all that stuff with with the good with the heart it's just i love it I'm really excited. And I just it. I just linked a uh, a, ca- a super sexy case from yeah, the team. That is really nice. Check this out. I saw that. I think I saw it. Maybe linked on the Cody oh, main I might site. Have to pick that up. I can't remember where I saw this. Yeah, uh, they they had a deal. The Flirk Flirk and Cody made a deal to make their own Cody version of this. Okay. Oh, yes. nice. Yeah, it doesn't that does look really nice. Wow, that is so like legitimately. I could I could see like when when Angela's like, okay, I'm ready to replace these Roku's. I would totally go with this. See, that's perfect because I, I have that knuckle. My parents' house, it's also their like router and it's doing yeah. a lot, it's playing a lot of roles for them. But I can just I have a pie sitting around, buy one of these, stick it in their bedroom upstairs. Now they have both com- TVs connected to my chair. You know, I wonder if Noah's gonna start working with some of this stuff too. I know. He does some displays too. Exactly. Huh. Nice rotten corpse. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that because I'd forgotten about that. And uh, it's it's fifteen bucks and that's your money's such going a to a great good, deal. Anytime I feel like you're buying from this ecosystem, that's going to a good cause. And specifically, since Chris mentioned on last that uh, the uh, NVIDIA Shield was just so responsive, mm-hmm. I noticed a huge bump upgrading from Raspberry 2 to a Raspberry 3 when using Kodi. Mm. Yeah, I, I believe that. I, uh, I should make mention that uh, on playback, when watching my, my review of the Shield, Plex actually started the file right away, but the video file I just happened to chose had like two seconds of black so somebody in youtube was like um hey and i, I watched it back like, oh yeah so it, it actually the the ras the uh, the nvidia shield is just wicked fast period and i mean that on like every level like netflix is yeah, obviously that's gonna be fast it's right. a simple app but like borderlands 2 launches instantly wow like, it's really it's really powerful um and i i and noah's box is cheaper and i like that mm-hmm. and then I, the raspberry pis are even another route to go so i i I'm, who am i to say which one you should go with but at each level there's great options I, and I still, I kind of even want to build a full PC over here yeah. in the studio too, just to have fun with that. With that, you but know, you know, I do have oh. that Pi sitting around. So if you want to try it as an endpoint to whatever solution you go mm, to, I might. My, I would be happy to, yeah, mm. set that up. I love you, Wes. What were you going to say, North? I actually have a, I have a oh. Pi uh, B plus that yeah. actually runs Cody. It's, it's, it, it's not the fastest. Uh, solution, but it does work pretty well, especially if you're only doing like 720p and lower. It it runs like a champ. Yeah, yeah. Which almost all the TV shows I get are 720p or lower. Uh, North Ranger, were you going to say something? But we kept cutting you off. Oh, or? Yeah, I, I can't remember if I uh, saw this one on the, you know the big rundown on last too. That some of these Android TV boxes are really the only ones that you can do reliable 4K streaming yet for people that are 
jumping on the 4K TV bandwagon. That is true. Yeah, you know, and I don't have a 4K TV, so I I just mentioned it in the specs. But not only does the Shield support 4K video, but it also supports UHD 4K. And I'll tell you, I am more excited about UHD 4K than I am mm-hmm. 3D because what UHD basically, if my understanding is correct, and it might not be, but my understanding is that UHD is essentially HDR 4K video. So yeah, like it's 4K that, video with HDR uh, exposure. The spec you want to look for is UHD plus. Right. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. And then that – I cannot wait. I know. <laughs> that, oh, man. That 3D so, did not compel me, but uh, 4K UHD plus, mm, yeah, that, that that's got me. So, Chris, what are you thinking for storage uh, hardware, especially in the RV? And aren't you worried about heat? Big time. Yeah, I really am because it's going to be in a dinette booth underneath the booth, closed up. Um, I'm already worried about heat with just the cradle point and the (laughs) Wi-Fi. And and I have a cell booster in there right now. Um, So I don't know. I, I, I have pledged to make it Linux. That's what I know, Okay, which has eliminated FreeNAS from the running, which um, is a little disappointing because I could use the FreeNAS plugins to accomplish some of the stuff I want because I don't mm-hmm. want to run more than one device. Right. I just because of the power issues. I, so I, these it are running on, everything if you just have the one. All of this stuff is going to be running off an inverter, which also powers my fridge and two other TVs. So there's not – I don't know how much overhead this thing has, but this inverter probably only has like another 1,000 watts to give like so i gotta I, I gotta make sure that i really i gotta make sure that i i am very power conscious about what i choose so whatever i implement i think i'm gonna need the support of i gotta be able to virtualize yeah totally so i think i so i'm i'm i am i am really trying not to do a nuck <laughs> with linux on it that's just connected to some disk but that seems like a possibility to me but what i really what i really want to do is i i would i would really like to have like something like free nas that is Linux based, but well, eventually I'm gonna I'm gonna put I'm gonna I have I have I have three booth dinette seats to work with, so I'm okay. gonna spread things out amongst the dinette right, seats right. to, to isolate to, to spread out mm-hmm. the heat, and that is one thing I'll be doing. And then I want to have a shit ton of storage, so I can I can consolidate all of my media that I store here at the studio and all of my media that I store at Angela's house which is about two terabytes here at the studio and about 12 terabytes at Angela's house. I want to consolidate all of that into my, on, into my own file server so I can get off their file servers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the studio's, you know, is, the studio's file server shouldn't be housing some of my personal media. So get that off there. Get it off Angela's house right. server so that way she can put more of her own stuff on there, like whatever she wants to watch. And then I want to have enough left over to run virtual machines yes. and enough left over to uh, – store video content and audio content that I record on the road when I'm like doing rover logs or shows and I want to have a local a backup. nice working set that you can have all the time. Yeah, and, and how to do all of that without generating a crap ton of heat or a crap ton of maintenance and something that is super reliable because um, when I'm on the road, I've got a million things to worry about. And, you need and, it to just work. Yeah. So that's my challenge. Yeah, go ahead, whack walk, uh, whack work. <laughs> <laughs> I like that we have muhahaha in there too. So that is my goal. That is where that is what I'm aiming for. And uh, I will whatever I end up whatever whatever solution I build, I'll probably record it all and as I build it up and set it up and then do a do an episode of last about it or something. So whatever I end up doing, whatever how I however I try to solve stay all these tuned. things, yeah, stay tuned and find out. 
All right, I have a little uh, conspiracy bacon to fry. That's not really Linux related. It's it's actually Apple related. Oh, but it might uh, it might result in more Linux users. So, hey. you want to fry a little conspiracy yes, bacon let's with do me? It. Mm, smells good in here. So, if you uh, follow any of uh, the uh, Apple uh, blogs or Scuttlebutt or whatever, I mean, they're just all over the internet. Apple users are belly aching about how old Mac hardware is. Right? Yep. It's like super ancient now. Um, with the exception of like a couple of Mac devices, they basically are some of the machines are running three year old hardware, and they're still charging the same exact price they did when they shipped it, like the Mac Pro or some yep. of the MacBook line. Uh, and I, I've been wondering, like, what are they doing? Are they crazy? And then today, this uh, this new Apple commercial uh, went online. Have you seen this? I have not. It's called iPad Pro, What is a Computer? Now, I can't play all of the audio because I'm sure even though it's a commercial, I'll get taken down for playing it. Well, you, of course, Chris. And a screen you can touch and even write on. So the whole the whole ad is the premise around rethink what a computer is. Don't assume that it's just for content consumption. This is the new iPad. Imagine what your computer could do if your computer was an iPad Pro. So here's my conspiracy. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. What if Apple is intentionally slowing down the MacBook and the uh, Mac line in general to try to get their consumer base to switch over? Rev up on the iPads. Yeah. Yeah, to be like, oh, let's buy iPads instead because they feel like they can't really, you know, there's not like that Mac business isn't going to go. It's just sort of what it's been forever. Yeah. Do you think that could be what it is? Could oh, it be the grand Apple conspiracy to get everybody on iPads? I mean, if it's their beautiful walled garden environment, I could see it. I, I could leave see it, it to you to decide, dear audience. Who knows? Makes sense to me. Everyone will have services and iPads, and uh, only us weirdo Linux users will be left on the desktop. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> oh. Maybe it's better that way. Ah. <laughs> Then people who want to make desktop apps will have to come to us. <laughs> and we'll, by then we'll have decided on the one true packaging format, so it'll be fine. Oh, we've already decided. We're going to talk about it on the show today. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd be curious about uh, Apple's margins on their A9, A10, and A11, you know, all, all their in-house chipsets sure. uh, right. compared to Intel. Sure, especially since they can, use, they can build that one chip and use it across three uh, mobile mm-hmm. devices. The margins on that have got to be pretty smart. 